As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. I come to all of you today as someone who is extremely happy because the work of our revolutionary predecessors has been achieved in 2021 with the recent race report commissioned after George Floyd's murder. The UK government has announced or its findings from the from the commission report has announced that UK is no longer institutionally racist and racism is over. We live in a post-racial society. I hope you can tell by the ridiculous nature in which I'm speaking that this report is absolutely ridiculous. And with me today, I've got historian and Professor Dr. Nicholas Gayet. How's it going? Very good, Mordu. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for joining me. No, so, pleasure. are you surprised with the findings of this report? <laughs> I mean, I think everyone was surprised, right? I mean, by which I mean, I, like, there are ways to do the kind of cultural work that this report is trying to do, which are perhaps not quite as extreme as the ways it ended up choosing. So you, you could imagine a report that tried to sweep a bunch of stuff under the carpet, but did it in a less distracting and glaring way than this report. <laughs> so I don't know, like, I can't figure it out this week. I don't know if the guys who cook this up are all high-fiving each other in an office in London someplace, or if actually they're starting to think this is a bit of a missed opportunity because we've really pushed this too far, right? Like, I mean, it's kind of obvious what we were trying to do now, and everyone is going to see it. And actually, we could have been a bit savvier about trying to make the same sorts of arguments less strongly. So so I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's been interesting to see how across the political spectrum from a kind of, you know, a kind of liberal center all the way through the left, everyone's kind of come together around saying that this thing is a, is a shit show. And I, I think it didn't yeah. have to be that way. Like they could have figured out a way to try and do the work they're trying to do without, without what they've ended up with. So, so what would, you said, it's obvious what they're trying to do. What do you think they're trying to do? Well, let's do a little bit of kind of contemporary history here. So this report was commissioned in the aftermath of the Black Lives Matter movement mm -hmm. uh, and the kind of, or rather the upsurge of that in the UK. Again, for your listeners who yes. are in the US, I mean, obviously Black Lives Matter has had a presence in the UK, but it was really after George Floyd's murder that uh, things kind of blew up here in the UK. Mm -hmm. And I mean, again, it's sort of not even a year, I guess, since that was going on here, but it really changed a lot of stuff, I think. And again, if I can kind of sort of take you back to that time, I mean, May, June of last year, 2020, there was a very strong sense that a kind of truth, I think, about Britain, yep, not just yep. about the US, was, was out in the open. And that truth was a pretty scary thing, I think, if you were right wing government, which has not traditionally been great on race issues, to say the least. And also, if you're institutionally, you know, in a place where, whether it was the media, whether it was the police, whether it was the corporate world, where you've seen systematic underrepresentation of people of color or discrimination against people of color, I think people were really losing their shit. 
So this is last sort of spring. And the purpose of, to give it its full name, the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities, which was founded by the government, you know, that summer or awesome of last year. The purpose of this was to like look into it, right? And what does the government Mm -hmm. do when it's challenged? It puts together a commission. So I think when it was set up, clearly it was intended to try to be a kind of response and to sort of say, well, the government's listening. We have to do something about the challenges that BLM has put forward. But effectively what they've done is deny the very kind of premise that the BLM movement rests upon, which of course is that our society is structurally racist. So that was sort of the the, the main question, I guess, that was coming out of BLM, or the main assertion is the I thing that to, the tries to I deny. I have to just interject at that point. And I think just to kind of situate this conversation to help our listeners understand more. If for those who don't know, the I guess the government has tried to put forward or a response because, you know, it was under fire, but they chose people who come into the report denying the exist- its very existence anyway. So are we really shocked at the findings? Yeah, I mean, it's, for me, so I'm, I mean, your listeners can't tell this. It's probably the best way for me to convey these points. But I mean, I'll fess up. I'm a middle-aged white guy, right? So I mean, I think mm-hmm. in a way, one of the things that this report is trying to do is that folks like me who work on race and history, you know, and kind of attentive, I guess, from a kind of academic and professional perspective to a lot mm-hmm. of these contemporary race questions, I think that one of the surefire way that you surefire ways you can shut down white progressive or even white liberal criticism of something mm-hmm. like what the government's trying to do is effectively to pack your commission with a bunch of people of color who, as you yep. say, had already taken in advance a position which said that structural racism didn't exist. So I mean, again, like I, I like to keep my kind of political and my professional life a little bit separate. But if I were doing something under a kind of professional header, so if I'm embarking on a research project, then clearly the first thing you try and do is figure out a methodology, figure out a kind of um, a box you can put that into, which is rigorous, right? I mean, yes. you have to. And so what's interesting to me about a lot of the response to the report is not only that the people who were brought in to be these commissioners, quote unquote, seem to me to be people who are all drawn from the right, but also yes. that these folks in terms of their methods, I mean, the reports and how they analysed, how they gathered information seem pretty laughable. So again, if you want social scientists to come in and if you want to harness and access all of this data, there's an awful lot of stuff out there. But it seems pretty clear that in terms of the methodology, there was nobody really qualified on this group of commissioners to undertake this project as if it were genuinely a contribution to knowledge. So that mm. then makes me think of what it really was, right? Which is a political and the political act was to try and deny that central premise of BLM, which is we live in a structurally racist society. So, I mean, we could talk more about the different people, you know, the commissioners or whatever else who are on. But I mean, again, I feel as a white guy that the very purpose of having those commissioners come from the backgrounds they came from. So, you know, the majority of them are people of color, black and brown people from Britain. You know, the purpose of having them there is effectively to put across to someone like me or, you know, other people who are sort of critical of this coming from, from this from a white background. You guys don't understand the lived experience of racism. We do. We don't think Britain's structurally racist. So mm-hmm. it's like the platforming and weaponizing of black and brown voices here is partly about silencing white people that might otherwise be willing to come out and speak out against structural racism. Wow. I didn't, okay, that's okay. That's an interesting angle. I think that definitely is true. And also, I think I believe 
this commission was, I mean, this report does gaslight their experiences. But also as well, I can't lie, I'm actually not surprised because I think for a long time, this has been the trajectory of unfortunately so many activists in the UK who have called for representation and have done activism in the, in, under the guise of, you know, diversity and inclusion. And what that does is centers live experiences and trauma as politic, as, as opposed to actually tackling uh, structural issues. So that's what I've found a lot of the time. So I'm not actually surprised with the way this has gone and uh, the way activism has taken. We know all too often we speak about race, especially people from black black community. They speak about race in very essentialist terms, unfortunately. But because of that, you find that, yes, okay, if we just get more black and brown faces in high places, race is a sign of progress. But we all we know all too often, yes, race is a factor, but as is class, people align with their material interests. So we have a Kemi Badenoch and we have a Pretty Patel, even though, you know, and again, it's very telling in the report they said, oh, the Home Secretary is, is, is of Asian descent. They quote that as yeah, if to say no. that that's a sign of progress or Rishi yeah, Sunak no. being the richest member of parliament is somehow uh, representative of thousands and millions of black and brown people in the UK. Well, I mean, so, okay, so so yeah, we, we we can get into that, and I mean, it's interesting to think about. I mean, I, I so I, well, let's talk about this now because I think that um the first thing you need to acknowledge, especially if you come at this from a kind of progressive or more sort of left leaning perspective, is mm-hmm. like it is not, to my mind, anti racist to assume that all black and brown people are going to take the same position on issues of race, on issues of economics. Yep. I mean, like that assumption that you might find. I mean, again, I hope that this isn't true of the left, but that assumption you might find from some people sort of calling out. Some some black person or some brown person for being an Uncle Tom or whatever else. Like for me, that yeah. language is completely inappropriate. And also, like we ought to have a society in which it's possible for whether they're entrepreneurial or whether they're more right wing or whatever else for black and brown people to find their place in that landscape politically without some sense that there is a default position. Now, I think that's true on a lot of issues, but on an issue like racism, it seems to me that actually <laughs> it oughtn't to be the case, right? That we effectively mm-hmm. find a kind of divide and rule position forming, particularly in terms of black and brown people that appear in politics, where effectively you have a Priti Patel kind of shouting down somebody who's accusing her of an immigration policy that's racist by saying, I know about racism, let me yes. tell you about racism. So I think I think we're in this kind of sticky position. And I would say, so this takes me back to something I said at the start of our chat, like this idea idea of like whether there may be an overreach going on here with regard to the the report like if you think about it there are a lot of black and brown people in the uk who i think are not necessarily for bad reasons uh, they have been since 2010 willing to engage the government. So they've been willing mm-hmm. to come forward and look for ways in which, even if the government isn't perhaps the one that they would themselves choose, they are interested in working with the government of the day on a good faith basis. So I look at people like Lord Woolley, Simon Woolley, the guy who mm-hmm. set up Operation Black Vote, and you know the ways in which he, particularly during the Theresa May years, was uh, committed to working with the government, to advising the government on race issues, and particularly on issues of representation. Now, what for me was absolutely fascinating about the report is like the night the report was released, there was Lord Woolley appearing effectively like with a panel of folks, other black and brown folks, massively critical of this. So in other words, like, in a way, the space for kind of good faith engagement by black and brown leaders uh, seems to mm-hmm. me to have shrunk after this. Actually, it's mm-hmm. much harder and it's going to be much harder now for people who perhaps don't share the government's politics, but who are keen to try and make sure that they still have a seat at the table. 
actually to have that seat at the table because the gaslighting you mentioned earlier on has raised the cost of any black and brown person engaging with this government on race issues anymore. And that to me is sort of a bit of a tragedy in all of this, right? Because actually I do respect the fact that there are some people, whether they're black, uh, British Caribbean, black British African, whether they're British South Asian, East Asian, whatever else, I respect the idea that there are people who are looking to find ways to engage with the government. And now I just feel like the price of doing that has gone through the roof because this report suggests there is nothing good faith about their approach to race. Yeah, I mean, I'm in total agreement with you. I probably don't share the same sentiment, but however, that's just me. And I do recognize, I do realize everyone has different roles to play. So I realize there's some black and brown people who engage, there's some black and brown people who do parliamentary politics. Maybe it's a bit of the cynic in me and, and, and years of seeing what this government has done to for me to actually engage in any good faith, believing that they have any good intentions to act on race. I feel like they've they've launched a false culture war. They've fueled a false culture war between black and brown people, uh, black people, and then they've weaponized this the language of the white working class, which again, we're going to speak wow. about very shortly. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think, I, again, <laughs> you, know, the, I, I, you put a very interesting tweet when you said that, you know, the operative word in the white working class isn't working class, it's actually white. Yeah, <laughs> but well, we, but we, would, we would, yeah, carry on. Yeah. Well, let's talk briefly about the culture war, right? Because, I mean, there's a way in which you could say, so there's there's these different kind of wings, right? There are some people that are like, don't touch any of these issues. The moment you speak about race, when the government has been talking to like its constituencies, particularly kind of white voters, the moment it's putting out all these messages about race and you as a more progressive person or a critic of the government, the moment you like take the bait, then they've won, right? So actually by Mm -hmm. even beginning to fight the culture war, then effectively you've lost it. So there's that view, right? Then there's another view, and this is the view to which I subscribe. Actually, um, this government and the right in general in Britain, if you look back at the history of the past, say, 40 or 50 years, an awful lot of the stuff that in the 1980s was perceived to be, what what do they used to call it, loony left? So an awful lot of these views which were pilloried, which were ridiculed, and which were absolutely kind of ruled out of court by actually not just the Conservative Party, but even many people in the Labour Party, certainly by all the media, then I really mainstream, right? So people coming yeah. forward and talking about the rights of gay people, talking about racial underrepresentation or talking about racism. I mean, all of these different things which were 40 years ago conceived of as being completely beyond the pale and lunatic are now mm-hmm. actually, in terms of like social stuff here in Britain, considered pretty mainstream. So actually, I think that this culture war thing, I would sort of encourage people who are a bit nervous about engaging to carry on engaging because, I mean, I'll give you a really concrete example. There are three or four universities in Britain that have since the BLM thing happened last summer. So since the kind of movement coalesced around, you know, um, George Floyd and toppling the Colston statue in Bristol and stuff, there are three or four universities. And I mean, like the top universities at Oxford, my own University of Cambridge, uh, Durham, I think Edinburgh as well. They've all announced that they're hiring in black British history. Now, you can say to me, Mom, dude, that's an incredibly like minor thing. Who cares? So it's sort of like one job in these different universities in Black British history. I actually think that's a massive, massive change and potentially is a foundation for actually changing the way we tell stories about Black people in Britain. And I mm-hmm. absolutely guarantee you that the only reason that that's happened, I mean, it's a pretty big bloody coincidence, right? It's been like years and years in which, which none of the elite universities would touch this stuff. And I suddenly, mm-hmm. four of the biggest ones in the UK, are coming forward and hiring in this area, it's because of what happened with the protests and it's because people are out there fighting the quote-unquote culture wars. So so for me, 
I do think it's worth having a debate about kind of tactics. But I mean, on the big question of whether people should actually be involved in engaging with the Tory government on all the racist stuff, or whatever else, of course you should be. Mm-hmm. I think that's very interesting. I mean, again, I'm, I'm not going to say I'm going to I'm going to sit and say I'm opposed to having black British history taught in our institutions. Of course not. I'm just a bit worried that I find a lot of the conversation and is just literally in the realm of literally representation politics that somehow yep. if we just get black and brown faces in high places it's a sign of progress when it's not because all too often those people go to those places and start aligning with their material interests and this is where i think you know my leftist marxist lens comes into play a lot <laughs> and and, no, and forms my view i mean you're not you're not you're not wrong right but i mean it is i think important to try and think a little bit about what the report was trying to do so to go back to the reports findings, the main kind of thrust of this report is a kind of bait and switch, right? So rather than having people talk about structural racism, the report comes out and says, we haven't found evidence of structural racism in Britain. What we should Mm -hmm. really be focusing on are these other issues. Now, amongst those other issues are some really dodgy things surrounding culture, so, in particular, assumptions about the oh, black we're going to go into that. Yes. Okay. Yes, all right. We'll, we'll come back to that. that. Yeah, but, yeah. We're going to go into that, and also, yeah. Cash, sorry, carry on. I was going <laughs> to say, but the other, but the other assumption is this idea that really we should be focusing on economic inequality. So, in other words, this idea that you can kind of um, subtract race from issues of economic inequality and just think about economic inequality and nothing else. Now, I mean, the hilarious thing about that, right, is that particularly our current government, with all of its sort of talk of having an agenda about levelling up or whatever else, I mean, all of this stuff is basically high-level bullshit. So, I mean, the idea that a government that's dedicated to the interests of the rich, the property, the best off in society, is actually committed to, quote-unquote, levelling up economically is ridiculous. But what I think is interesting in the language of the report is precisely that suggestion. I mean, there's slightly doing what you just did, which is saying we shouldn't focus on race. Instead, we should focus on economic stuff. We should think about class. Now, the difference between you and the Tory government is that you're sincere when you say that. But I do think (laughs) it's important to think about the way in which race provides you with a very sharp lens on inequality, on injustice, and also on the entrenched forms of exclusion that a society like ours in Britain has. So in that sense, I, I'm not kind of keen. Com, com, I mean, I agree with you on representation, but representation politics should not be the end of this. But I do sometimes think it can be the beginning rather than a kind of dead end. So so yeah, I don't want to sort yeah. throw race out here. And no, no, I'm, I've talked to you. I'm not class reductionist in the slightest. I do believe race and class have an have a important intersect, intersection that needs to be analysed, but with both. But what I find with this report is that this government wants to reduce racism to the interpersonal rather than yeah. the structural. I mean, they've come out and said there's no structural racism. But yeah. let's go into let's go into specifics of the report. So yeah. I've got I've got some notes in front of me. Sure. Page six. <laughs> I should have my copy. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> the word mistrust was repeated often as some witnesses from the police service, mental health, education, and health service felt that the system was not on their side. In summary, too many racialized people think racism exists and fails to appreciate how much better has the UK the UK has become. Your response. Well, look, I mean, it's a very funny way of uh, listening to people who are complaining about racism, right? To say they're focused on the wrong thing, but worse than that, their experience is not only wrong, their experience is holding them back. So in other words, if they, or rather I should say their processing of their experience, right? Because what we're getting mm-hmm. here is, you know, the old line, you know, that we should be taking seriously people's experience of racism and communities should be able to define what racism is as far as they're concerned. Here that's completely turned inside out. So the clear suggestion is, 
if you are from a particular community, say the black community in Britain, which yeah. has traditionally experienced racism, we've now got to the point where people in that community are so blind to all the amazing progress going on that they are effectively continuing to kind of hamstring themselves. So because they refuse to acknowledge progress, the thing that's holding them back is them. Which if you think about it, it's kind of... Like, mental. It's just mental slavery, isn't it? That's it. Well, but it's, but it's really, really... I get, I get a lot. I mean, so I'm a historian of the US, right? And although I mostly work on the 18th and 19th centuries, I know a little bit about 20th century US, the history yeah. of race, and particularly the history of the kind of management of race. And what's so mm-hmm. funny about it, I mean, I shouldn't say funny because this is all really depressing, but what's so striking about this is how all of this has been done before. So particularly in the context of the US, where, you know, mm-hmm. there's a major report from the government or a think tank on race every five years or so, you know, from whenever the 40s onwards, this is exactly the kind of thing that one would see there. So just in terms of thinking about victim culture as something which has very often been presented to us as the cause of the woes that are experienced by people of color, you see exactly mm-hmm. the same thing in this new report, right? So the same line, the same angle, that actually if we could only affect the perception of these black and brown people <laughs> that are somehow being discriminated against, then their eyes would open and they'd realize that anyone can become Pretty Patel. You don't need parents who've got a news agent dynasty. Anyone can be Pretty Patel. <laughs> or oh, you don't have a net worth of 200 million. Well, you yeah, yeah or, or, or marrying into a billionaire's daughter. Yeah, that's the other way of doing exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Then another page seven. In many areas of investigation, including educational failure and crime, we were led upstream to family breakdown as one of the main reasons for poor outcome. This yep. is, I mean, this, for me, this was, just, this was just a rehashing of the Moneyhan report, actually. I'm not surprised because Tony Sorrell, he says this before. He's spoken about the, the emasculation of black boys. He goes, he pathologizes black boys saying that they're fatherless. That's what's, that's what's uh, producing these bad outcomes for them. So what would you respond to, you know, the main reason of poor outcomes, the family breakdown? Yeah, I mean, just to pick up on your reference there, for those listeners that don't know, the Moynihan Report uh, was the, it was called The Negro Family. The Case for National Action came out in 1965, authored by Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was then a sociologist who was working in the Labour Department under Linda Johnson. So the purpose of that report and of numerous reports thereafter is to describe family breakdown among African-Americans as a kind of cultural pathology of blackness, rather than to see pressures on families as an obvious consequence, both of racism and of poverty. So ever since then, uh, and in fact, you can see this going back much further. I mean, you go back to the 19th century, you see the same kind of arguments being made about free black people in the North while there's slavery in the South. That same sense that there are all kinds of cultural pathologies surrounding black people. They're degraded by racism or by their experience of slavery or whatever else. All those things go way, way, way back. So what you see, I guess, in the latest report is a way of kind of updating that and of trying to figure out a way to promote this kind of pro-family agenda, but to mm-hmm. layer race on top of it. So, I mean, in truth, I think someone like Tony Sewell, the guy who was kind of in charge of this whole thing, I think he's Jamaican in terms of his origins, so Black British Caribbean, but he has for the longest time been a kind of family values guy. And it's important to say that that is not a rhetoric reserved solely for Black people. So you'd see exactly the same kind of thing in, say, the new Labour years under Tony Blair, with this emphasis on social breakdown, poor white people as well, potentially suffering from all kinds of problems related to the fact that the family has been strained or whatever else. But I think it has a particular edge 
and a history when it relates to black people. And what was so awkward, I think, about the report was the way in which the report would basically compare different categories of people of color and so suggest that some of them have kind of worse family outcomes than others. And that must yep. therefore be related to these kind of cultural deficiencies. And again, there's a long history of doing that. Uh, and it's deeply disturbing. And it overlooks, again, these long histories of racism and particularly of economic inequality, which do affect different categories of people of color differently. But rather than just saying, hey, that's the reason that we can explain these different family patterns, the assumption here that there's something cultural going on with, say, Black Caribbean people, which is crazy. I mean, it's amazing to me that people put their name to it but no it's, it's i mean akala quite rightly pointed out well how come their literal cousins in the actual in the caribbean don't have the same cultural pathologies so the question is what yep. does it say about british society not about caribbean culture but i wanted them no, to move swiftly on to we were impressed by the immigrant optimism of some of the new african communities i mean I, before i invite you to comment this particularly disturbed me because i saw this as a pitting against caribbean communities and african communities and I think it's very disingenuous because first and foremost, we have to look at the socioeconomic background of many West African immigrants. Firstly, firstly, in their own home countries, a lot of the time, they're middle class. They have their professionals, yep. they're degree holders. They came from, yep. they have degrees in the 70s and 80s in the UK, went back to Africa, then come back again with their kids. That's not uncommon. So even them being able to get a visa to come to England shows they're from a particular socioeconomic background. And we already know those who have degrees usually go on to have children who have degrees as well. So, but however, the Africans that came the same time as the Windrush generation or, or soon thereafter have the same outcomes as the Caribbean did at the same time. So I think it's very disingenuous to put the African community versus the Caribbean community here. Yeah, but I mean, this absolutely everything you just said, I completely agree with. But to go back to the point that we were talking about earlier about representation politics, I mean, this is, maybe we should call it education politics. This is, for me, mm-hmm. the reason that Britain desperately needs to know more about the history of black people in Britain. I mean, I even mean black communities themselves could benefit from knowing more about this, but definitely white people in Britain who don't have the first clue about some of these stories, about these different pathways. I mean, you talk to people about the fact that various members of the cabinet have kind of come to Britain via Uganda, especially some of the South Asian members of the cabinet. People have got no idea what's going on in Uganda, say. So again, I think, um, I mean, you probably saw these, but the amazing Steve McQueen movies that he made were broadcast over the winter. We see the small axe films. Uh, I mean, to me, as a historian who teaches in, you know, elite British university, I felt a sense of embarrassment, actually, about the fact that so many of those stories I was hearing for the first time. You know, you say to yourself, well, what are we doing collectively as profession and also as a culture in not giving young Britons a better sense of how our national story is now this braided story, right, with all of these different elements within it? And I don't think we can have a grown-up and inclusive conversation about race until we can find a way to make sure that that kind of education politics, whatever you want to call it, has gone in the right direction. And And this is why the sort of history wars, again, don't strike me as being just culture war kind of fluff, they actually strike me as being quite central to a project we should all be committed to, which is just understanding each other better. I'm sorry, I don't want to sound like Rodney King, but like that genuinely, like we cannot all get along (laughs) until there is recognition widely that these stories belong to all of us. So No, I hear that. I hear that. I'm in agreement with you. It then goes on to say, as their Caribbean peers sit in the same classrooms, 
it is difficult to blame racism in education for their latter for the latter's underachievement. I think again, yeah. it's very telling. There's no there's no talk about job market afterwards. Uh, there's no talk about the university attainment gap, which actually you find is like less than two percent between African Caribbean boys and, and uh, so Afro Caribbean and and children of West Af- African immigrants. We find university attainment yeah. gap like two percent. So it doesn't really tally up. I mean, it's something to be said there. What is it about Caribbean boys in schools? that we can maybe interrogate and investigate and look further into. But to kind well, of say I that, mean, look, oh, what's so funny uh, about this, right? It's the fact that you said, we've been talking about the way in which... Racism. Yeah, yeah. So, sorry. Yeah, so what, what's so funny about this, right, is you mentioned earlier that, uh, in effect, these this kind of effort to try and talk about culture, what, the way we should really be thinking about this is through economics. And we should actually be trying to think about how these pathways that brought these different people to Britain produce very different economic realities. In fact, bizarrely, <laughs> The report goes back and actually reinscribes race or culture within these different communities of black and brown people to say, well, look, there's something wrong with Caribbean culture. It's like, well, if you're going to do economics, maybe now would be a good time, as you just suggested, to actually think about how the Windrush generation found their way here and they have, say, much lower home ownership rates than you have amongst white people. And that carries through right the way to today. Like all kinds of employment prospects, I mean, all kinds of different kind of pathways by which you would establish yourself in a country if you're coming from these Caribbean backgrounds, like you said, you do have a different experience, certainly the middle and kind of upper class African immigrants who've arrived in the last 20 or 25 years. So again, these are all good places to bring economics in. And yet the report, which has as its kind of banner headline that it wants to make us think about class, suddenly like goes AWOL on the class question and starts talking about culture. So again, these are all ways in which you're just like, it's not even internally consistent in what it's trying to argue. Exactly, exactly. Should Britain be a model for racial progress from white majority countries? I mean, I know everyone laughs at that, but there are a lot of really racist, of really racist white majority countries. I mean, I mean, like, so, 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 like, on the one hand, I want to laugh as well. But I also do, I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm not going to come across and say I'm proud of Britain, I'm going to get cancelled. But like the fact that there is a kind of national outpouring of like, what the hell just happened about this report? Like, yeah, I would quite like to see that replicated in other white majority countries where they try and pull this kind of bullshit, right? I mean, you just follow something like France and look Mm -hmm. at the race debate in France, which is in many ways even more screwed up than a race debate in Britain. Do we have something to teach the French? Like, maybe we're not quite as bad. I mean, we shouldn't play racism Olympics, right? But it does feel to me that the fact that there is lively conversation about this stuff here, there's something about that that's like a tiny bit positive, but in the dreadful context of the general kind of level of racial rhetoric and kind of debate about race in majority white countries being pretty terrible still. Okay. On the issue of slavery, and that, you know, it wasn't all just exploiting and suffering and there's some positive to be taken away from that. What are some of the positives to be taken away from slavery? I'm obviously asking that very sarcastically. <laughs> like, what did you think when you saw that part, someone who's a historian? Well, on one level, it plays into what we are talking about a minute ago, right, which is the kind of culture war surrounding ideas of victimhood. So this notion that, you know, a black community or even a general kind of community of color, which goes off thinking about empire or about enslavement as things that define that community in the present is a community that can't close the book on the past and look at the present and all of its brilliant, sunny equality and kind of promise. Like that's the 
background to this, right? I mean, of course, it's mm-hmm. not just bullshit. It's really offensive. And again, yeah. I, I really, there's been an effort by some of the commissioners uh, in the media over this past weekend. So we're recording this like about a week after the report came out. And there's been an effort by some of the commissioners to row this back or, or actually just to claim that they have been misrepresented. So I think it is really important to recall what mm-hmm. the report actually says on this. Did you write the quote down? If you didn't, I can try and remember it for you. I didn't write quite. I probably can grab it. Well, okay, I'll fill for you while you're looking for it. So it basically says something along okay, the okay. lines, there is a new story to be told, yes. which doesn't just focus on slavery and exploitation, but also looks at the way that peoples of African descent, you know, found ways to try and create new African British identities. So that's the line, right? They were remodeled, I mean, basically, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, they had the opportunity to become British. Admittedly, it was in difficult circumstances. <laughs> but, you know, they took it. The ones who were enterprising took it, you know? They were offered the opportunity to become British through slavery. And, like, if you were a go-getter, kind of get-ahead person, you'd have said yes. So, clearly, well, two things about this, right? One of them is, as someone who teaches slavery and experience of enslavement. I mean, it's a very exciting, inspiring field to be in, in lots of ways, because actually thinking about the experience of enslaved people and trying to figure out ways in which, despite obviously the kind of bias of the archive and the difficulty of being able to find materials there, which genuinely and fully express the point of view of enslaved people, there's a lot of wonderful work on that. A lot of fantastic scholars who are looking into that kind of question, right? So actually the premise of the, the assertion in the report that we're kind of only interested in telling this kind of story about enslavement that puts enslaved people as these kind of passive victims that had no agency, whatever, that doesn't reflect the reality of the business. But having said that, the idea of a story of enslavement, which sees it as some kind of route to assimilation, or that privileges the kind of Britishness as the kind of goal of all of this, seems to me to be mad. I mean, completely mad. And again, I think uh, we talked at the start about overreach, right? Like there are a lot of places, I think, in this report where a slightly savvier bunch of people working for the Tory government could have put something together which was not wantonly and openly offensive. And they screwed it up. Yes. Like <laughs> they gave us the report that has those lines in it, which then define the story, right? So you had the Huff Post or whatever saying slavery was not so bad, or slavery wasn't just all about suffering, or whatever that headline said. Yeah. There must have been people doing face palms in number 10 at the fact that that language then led the reporting on the whole report rather than getting the same kind of message across in a way that was a bit clever, right? So I think that was another element in which they screwed up. Exactly, exactly. And final two, I believe. And also in the report, we're talking, the government has suggested that we remove the term BAME. I, like many other people of person of colour, actually do not like the term BAME. I think it's a catch-all phrase that doesn't, and it's a bureaucratic language that first and foremost wasn't chosen by people of colour. No one identifies with that term. And I think for all too often, people have tried to like, okay, if we speak about the success of one person from one, let's say, South Asian group, that means that that's progress of everyone else in that category. So I did not like it. However, again, I think it is very in line with what this report is trying to do that keeps the language of racism and anti-racism work in literally in the realm of representational politics or diversity and inclusion rather than talking about the structural. So what do you think about the term BAME and, and there a suggestion that it should be removed? Yeah, I think um, one thing I've gotten during my time you know, teaching in universities is a sense from particularly black students that they're anxious that BAME washes out a lot of the inequalities between different or the different experiences amongst quote unquote communities of color, right? So actually 
that idea that BAME can do a kind of uh, generalizing work, it tends to wash out really important differences. So, I mean, obvious ones, right? So you could look at differences between, say, folks who come from uh, South Asian, say, Indian background in the UK versus, say, Bangladeshi background. So actually, generally speaking, mm-hmm. when you break those two things apart, they're both South Asian experiences, but in aggregate, the experience of Bangladeshi kids versus uh, kids from Indian heritage, it, they look very different. So, I mean, socioeconomically, in terms of like, I think the Indian population in the UK is one of the highest property owning populations, like 70%, I think, according to the latest statistics. Wow. So homeowning kind of stuff. Yeah, it's really, so you're talking about an extremely economically successful community for the Bangladeshi community far less successful. So in terms of like thinking about how that would influence you, if you were trying to figure out a way to make an institution representative, clearly you wouldn't want to be like, okay, well, we want to try and get to 15% or whatever of our students would be students of color. Like that would be a crazy way to, to do anything. And when it comes to admissions, I mean, I think that's probably one of the places where in my work, you see all this stuff most clearly because we clearly have a responsibility as an elite institution to try and ensure that all the privileges and opportunities that we can offer students are offered to a student body that looks as much like Britain as it can. So again, to the extent that race and income mm-hmm. and postcode and a bunch of other things go into all of that, it wouldn't necessarily be very helpful, I think, for us to be working on a kind of BAME number, whatever that would look like. It's so much more important to try and break these communities down. But just one last thing on this, I mean, like even within, so so, so BAME, all race, I mean, so all race is made up. <laughs> Sorry to say that. All race is racecraft. Yes, but also, no, like, it is. I mean, but even within categories, it's so important actually to kind of burrow down to the level of the individual experience. So I have known students at Cambridge who were, say, Black African in terms of their uh, descent, their heritage, but they may have come from very poor families and they may have been picked up for a scholarship at a private school. So they may have come to us from, I don't know, Winchester or Eton or somewhere else. But actually, can you define them by being Eton? Well, no. Can you define them by being Black? Well, no. Can you define them by being Black African? Well, no. So the really important thing is that there are things you can do with these groups, but if you just try and lump everything together and say there's like a community of color and then there's white people there may be some very big crude questions in society that will help you answer but if you're interested in the stuff that really matters you have to go into more detail and i think bame can sometimes hide more than it reveals so i'm with you on this one no, I'm in agreement. I think ultimately, again, smoke and mirrors, because again, people want to, this government's report wants to reduce racism or race work to the interpersonal, but doesn't focus so much again on the structural, because that's where you have the big questions. And finally, the report suggests that the term white privilege is offensive and unhelpful. Do you find the term white privilege offensive? <laughs> no i mean no i don't so there are so many things i could say about this but i mean one of them is of course that like there are plenty of white people who are disadvantaged there are all kinds of ways in which white people poorer white people are struggling and are hurting and whatever else but the key thing is that whiteness is not a category of disadvantage in britain whiteness has never been a category of disadvantage in britain and a bit like with the rhetoric that's grown up over the tory government supposedly saying it's going to do stuff for the white working class quote unquote the whole purpose here is to try to create first an amnesia or a blindness around the idea that you actually do have advantages compared to people of color from being white because whiteness is normalized. So there's an effort to try and deny that. But second, there's an attempt actively to set up the idea that you have disadvantage in modern Britain if you are white because of all of the interventions, you know, from the supposed lefties that truly run the country, although they're never elected into the government for whatever reason, but from all the lefties who really run the country who are out there to promote black and brown people over white people. 
And it's completely untrue, but I think it's very powerful. And again, whether you want to see it as being a reflection of the government's anxiety about the idea of building cross-racial alliances of class, or whether you want to see it as a sign of the government's overreach and confidence, that genuinely it believes now that it can unite the entire kind of white population behind this idea of white people being disadvantaged in their own country. The effects either way are really toxic. And the fact that you see mainstream journalists picking up on this phrase, white working class, and using it uncritically, to me is a really, really disturbing development. And I mean, it's one that I think all of us have a responsibility to call out because there is a working class. There is not a white yes, yes. working class, which is separate and disadvantaged through the fact that it's white. So again, you see this hilarious kind of rotation or switching from race to class whenever it suits the government's interests. And um, I mean, again, exactly. just just finally on this moment, I don't know if you saw, like back in December or January of this past year, there was actually an, an editorial in the Times newspaper, which is in all sorts of ways a bastion of right-wing thinking and of racism, in my view. But there was a piece in the Times newspaper endorsing the idea of creating scholarships to private schools in the UK for white people, for white working class boys. So you actually have the Times saying white working class boys are falling behind all of the other uh, people who are economically disadvantaged. Now we need a special scholarship for them. So, you know, in the year of our Lord 2021, we have the supposed newspaper of record here in the UK arguing for a whites-only scholarship. You couldn't make it up. Absolutely. I mean, that's where we are at the moment, guys. We seem like, I think, I think it's interesting, as Dr. Nick has said, the fallout from this report shows positive signs and shows that people who are on the ground, especially activists and academics, are not going to, you know, take their eyes off the ball and be kind of, you know, being by, be kind of tricked into thinking what the government wanted to think. So this has been the Malcolm Effect with Do Please like, comment, subscribe. I will leave Dr. Nick's socials in the comments in the description of this episode. Please drop a rating, be that on YouTube, Spotify or iTunes. And until next time, peace out, guys.